0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. 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 Good evening. We'll be in Chronicles, the 2nd Chronicles, 21 through 27. And next week we will finish Chronicles and the Old Testament. 2nd Chronicles 21. Seeds become trees and trees bear fruit. That is what we must remember. Little seeds become trees and trees bear fruit. The process is never as fast as we want and the beginning stages are never as impressive as what's happening around us. Imagine being Those, that generation, who was enslaved, well not enslaved, exiled, to the Babylonian Empire. And you watch this grand empire succumb to the Persian Empire. And you watch the Persian Empire permit people to go back to their lands and build their temples funded by their great wealth and resources. And you are among these Jews coming back to Jerusalem, and you remember the stories, you've been praying the Psalms, remember the legacy, and you come back and find that the land has been neglected. It's rubble, it's ruins, the city is no longer as majestic as the stories give justice to. And worse of all, there is no temple. There's no center of life. There's no throne for our God to reign over us. And the enemies around us, the pagan nations, are stronger than us. What do we need? What do we do? We need the chronicler, probably written by Ezra, to tell us again our story so that we remember that we were once a seed, but we became a tree. And our fruit was bad, so the tree got chopped down, but the stump is sprouting with the seed of David again. We need a chronicle to tell us the story of God's divine history, so that we can see that we are branches and leaves and stems in this trunk of salvation history, that we are growing up out of the seed and we are seeking to bear fruit. As we connect with the seed of our heritage, we grow fruit for the future of the world. That's what the Chronicles tell Israel. That's what they still tell us today. One warning, brothers and sisters, There is another kind of seed out there, the seed of the serpent, and the serpent is crafty. The serpent is clever. The serpent can also produce fruits of various kinds, but the serpent's roots choke and suffocate the roots of God's seed. And we must be careful. You may remember Genesis 3 verse 15. God pronounces basically what the entire story is going to look like, from way back in our past, all the way up until he returns, and our tree flourishes like the tree of life again. He says this, Genesis 3:15, speaking to the serpent himself. Because you have done this, because you have deceived my children and invited them into rebelling against me, because you have corrupted the earth by inviting them to sin, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put Enmity, war, conflict, hostility between you and the woman, between your seed, offspring, children, and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Two seeds. Life is basically a story of two characters. You are growing up out of one of these two seeds. One seed will always be the shrub that can only bite the heels of the seed of the woman. And the other one will be a magnificent tree that can crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So we either choose tonight like these kings and the stories we will see and the stories we have seen, we will either choose to rule. Um, we will either choose what rules us or we will just let whatever surrounds us rule us. As sons and daughters of the king, we have the royal authority to choose what rules us. But if we don't, if we choose to just, oh, I don't want to serve anyone, I'm going to cruise through life, there's only one of two seeds. And you are letting, you are giving permission to whatever surrounds you to rule you, and you will become a carbon copy of what surrounds you. This is what we see in our kings tonight. 21, verse 1, Jehoshaphat, as Randy reminded us, jumping Jehoshaphat. He was a good king. In fact, Jehoshaphat was referred to in 17 verse 3. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. Jehoshaphat knew the roots that his seed belonged to. He followed the old-fashioned ways of David. <laughs> He's the last king that's going to do that until Hezekiah next week. So we're going to have this long slog of (laughs) muck in between. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Jehoram, what was he like? Jehoram was horrible. (laughs) He really was. If you look at verse 4. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram is horrible because he's insecure. He cannot allow his brothers to have the cities Jehoshaphat gave them to have rule over. He felt threatened by people having power around him. So his answer to ruling was to execute the others that have rule to secure, to feel better about himself by putting other people down. And anyone who has any kind of authority, even next to his, I got to chop them off. This is what insecurity will do. And we must find our insecurity in our king or we will be ruled by our insecurity. And so in verse 6, he walked, unlike Jehoshaphat, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Ahab is the worst king on record. The worst. Now we can say maybe Hitler tops him, but theologically speaking, Ahab was the worst. And his daughter, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. Oh, there you go. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord clarification if you forget after solomon passed his son jeroboam was a fool israel came and pleaded lighten the taxation and the work on us solomon was heavy jehoram listens to the older council and says lighten up and then he listens to his peers and they say no show you're the boss like jehoram show you're the boss be tough So Jehoram tightens things on everybody, listens to the cool kids rather than the wisdom of the ages. And the kingdom splits. Ten tribes break covenant with David and Jerusalem. And they rebel. They're called Israel. Israel is the rebellious nation. Judah and Jerusalem are just two tribes. A small little group of people who still on and off worship Yahweh in the temple. So when it says that Jehoram walked within the ways of the kings of Israel, he was mimicking the contemporary kings of the kingdom right above him, the evil kingdom. There was not one good king in Israel, not one, not one. And Ahab was the epitome, the climax of this. Jehoram needs to feel like he is somebody so badly, he will marry the daughter of the cool kids to his ruin and to his destruction. So, verse 7, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever, God's going to be merciful through this trouble period that we're going to read about. Because God planted a seed and he will make it grow. That seed is going to sprout up and it's going to get chopped down and weather's going to break branches off and it's not always going to look as good as the seed of the serpent. The cool kids in Israel, it's not always going to look that good, but it will grow because God will not abandon the seed. He's watching it despite Jehoram, horrible Jehoram, deplorable Jehoram. So as a result in verse 8, Edom revolts against the kingdom. And then Libna, toward the end of verse, down in verse 10, Libna was a tiny little nation. They revolt, and they're like, you can't do anything about it. We're revolting, and Jehoram can't do anything about it. He's not strong enough. He's spending all his energy on his image. So the end of verse 10, he had forsaken the Lord, the God of his fathers. That's why the kingdoms they had under their thumbs and collected tribute from were rebelling. So he then sets up high places in the hill country of Judah. High places where people went and had ritual prostitution, sex with other gods of the land. So he's doing really bad things. And then in verse 16, the Lord stirs up Against Jehoram, the anger of the Philistines. David worked hard to put those Philistines down. Jehoram ruins it all. The Philistines rise up. Then the Arabians come and they take his sons and a lot of the treasures of the kingdom. So Jehoram now has no sons except one little son left. He will reign next. And he's, a, he's, he's even worse than his father. Just, just warning. So he's lose The seed is getting whittled down because the seed of the serpent has found its way into the kingdom. And it's trying to squeeze out and choke the seed. Now, Elijah, in the midst of all this, Elijah the prophet, his one appearance in Chronicles, he's all over kings, right? Elijah the prophet comes and says, dude, bad move. Like, you're just not doing good at all. Why'd you kill all your brothers? Every single one of them was a better man than you. And now, because you've abandoned the Lord, he's abandoned you, and you are going to die a terrible, agonizing death. Your bowels will come out of your rear end. That's what it says. So we read in verse 18, After all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. I feel like there's just a lot of stories behind that little phrase, great agony. And his people made no fire in his honor. Ding dong, the witch is dead, is more like what happened. Like the fires made for his father's. He was 32 years old when he began his reign, and he reigned eight years, that's it, in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Basically, in the Chronicles, they're like, this guy was a king, we have to acknowledge that, but not a true king. He's not even buried with our people because he's the seed of the serpent. He married Ahab's daughter. You basically married the world. Not a good move. So, now his son, 22, Ahaziah. In verse 2, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah the granddaughter of Omri, which means the daughter of Ahab. That's Jehoram's wife. That's his mother. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. So if Jehoram was deplorable and insecure, Ahaziah was the people pleaser. He had no backbone. He had no goal. He let everyone rule for him, and especially Ahaziah, uh, not Ahaziah, uh, Athaliah, Wicked Ahab's daughter, his mother, she's just going to... She's basically... He's a puppet. She's the power behind him. He is coupling with the literal seed of the serpent. Athaliah is the serpent in the midst of Jerusalem. And so, he does wickedly. Um He walked... We already read that. Okay. So he was... Verse 4, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For after his father... For after the death of his father... They were his counselors to his undoing. So he has no advice other than bad advice. So what does he do in verse 5? He even followed their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth Gilead. Okay, so this guy's just like not even thinking. He's just, oh yeah, we'll join Israel in their war against the Syrians and... Um, We'll partner with you. I mean, my mom wants us to, because, you know, my mom's from your land. So I guess I should do what my mom wants to do. I'll please her. I'll please my counselors. I'll please everyone. I'll please the country up there. So I'll go and fight with you. But guess what happens? You might remember this in the Kings. Elijah uh, sent one of his prophets to go and anoint Jehu to assassinate the rest of the wicked Omri dynasty. Ahab was the son of Omri. This dynasty was terrible. So Jehu goes and assassinates all of Ahab's sons. Uh, Jezebel and, and all the children annihilated. Well, guess who gets annihilated because he's there. He walked right into his own death. He was part of this. And so they bury him He's like, oh, he's the grandson of Jehoshaphat, so we'll bury him. Uh, it's not told where. It's implied he's buried outside of the kingdom. He's buried in exile. He loses out. So now, guess who's gonna be king? Not his son. Oh no. Mother was ruling the kingdom through him. Mother is gonna become king. Wicked Athaliah, the seed of the serpent, stands up in verse 10. When Athaliah, his mother, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed the royal family of the house of Judah. The seed of the woman that was promised to crush the seed of the serpent, which was revealed as Abraham and his lineage, then um, specifically through Judah and its lineage down to David and this king, David and his sons. She's going to wipe it all out. She's going to make sure that there is no hope and no promise of a Messiah to come, that there will be wickedness and the serpent's going to win and once and for all. So she starts slaughtering all the sons. But there's one baby who was missed because Jehoshaphat, verse 11, the daughter of the king, this um, this is Ahaziah's sister, she took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death, and she hides him in the temple. Her husband, she's married to the high priest, Jehoiada, they hide little baby Joash in the temple. This is really scary. I mean, we've had some bad kings, and now the seed of promise of salvation is down to a single baby. But he's in the best place. He's where all the kings should have been hanging out. The temple of God. We have a Joash in this room, so he's feeling a little bit in the spotlight tonight. (laughs) So Joash is raised, and in the seventh year, this is chapter 23, we see that Jehoiada decides it's time. Athaliah is wrecking our country. Joash needs to be declared the rightful king. So he has all the priests and Levites who are doing their duties in the temple prepared. Those who were coming in for their weekly shift and those who were leaving their weekly shift were all armed and told to stay. So he got twice the number of priests with him and they're all given weapons and they're all told to station in different places and they've got this whole coup situated. It's all staged. And they they sit at uh, Joash in verse 11. Then they brought out the king's son, And put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. That's the law of God, this Deuteronomy. You might remember Deuteronomy said the king shall uh, copy this law and memorize this law and know this law. So we see here a picture of this child on the throne crowned as a coronation ceremony and the law is put in his hands. This is what the king is supposed to look like, even though it's a child. A child will lead us. That's what the Bible says in Isaiah 11. Even a child will lead us. And it's through uh, Psalm 8. uh, Even It's the praises of children that defeat the foe. That's why Christ says we must be like children. And then they proclaimed him king. And Jehoiada, the high priest, and his sons anointed him. And they said very loud, all these priests here, double-duty priests, they're all shouting, long live the king, long live the king. So Athaliah, probably gulping down wine in her palace, hears this and says, what is going on? And she comes out and, treachery! And all Jehoiada has to say is Caesar. She has no one on her side. She's executed. We read nothing about her burial. So now Jehoiada begins to reform the nation. He organizes the temple the way David did. We saw that a few weeks ago. Um, So everything's being put back in order. Why? Because the king now has a priest as his counselor. And this is the way it's supposed to look. In our lives, we need the presence of God's leaders giving us counsel, walking beside us, showing us how things are supposed to be ordered. So verse 21, the end of chapter 23, all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. The seed of the serpent was crushed by the seed of the woman. It was Jehoshabeth that saved Joash. It was a woman who saved from the seed of the serpent. We see the seed of the woman. The woman always comes in in the dire moments and saves God's people. This is our salvation story. He uses the un- he he gets underneath the radar of the serpent who who loves power who loves to exalt himself who loves to tr- who wants to trample everything and God gets beneath him and undermines his authority and this is Christ comes through Mary this is this is an astonishing story that we have and Jehoiabeth uh, I'm sorry Jehoshabeth married to Jehoiada she does the work of saving the seed um, now. Um, So the seed of the serpent is squashed here. We're going to see things get a lot better, but not perfectly better. Now, um, also, I want you to notice the contrast. The land rejoiced, and there was quiet in the land when Athaliah had been put to death. What did the land do when uh, Jehoram, horrible Jehoram, died? No one regretted. There was no bonfires made for the king, and everyone was just saying, ding-dong, the witch is dead. And no one had regret. Uh, but here we have, cele- we have more celebrations, what we're seeing. But now there's quiet, there's rest in the land. Ah, oh, the wicked in charge is never restful, is it? Now, Joash, in chapter 24, we read his mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba. And in verse 2, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. So there we go, we get a stamp of approval. Joash was a good king. But there was one qualification. All the days of Jehoiada, the priest. Sadly, everything Joash does well comes to a screeching halt when Jehoiada, the priest, dies. So here it is. Verse 15. This is 24-15. Jehoiada, that's the priest, he grew old and full of days and died. He was 100 30 years old at his death. That's 10 years longer than Moses. This guy was walking the way of the Lord. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings. We just read three kings, well, one wicked queen and two kings who were not buried with the kings. Here a priest is given the honor Wow. This priest was seen as a real king of the people even though he didn't wear the crown. He's buried among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God in his house. But verse 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king Joash and then the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the Idols, and the wrath and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem. God sent them prophets to testify against them, but they would not listen. Joash is a follower of modernization. This is our world right now. Oh, yes, yes. Our heritage was very godly. Yes, yes. We listened to God. Um, But we know so much more now. I mean, we've got evolution and science and medicine, which can defeat anything. And um, we've, democracy has just made the world a better place. And we've grown out of all of this. I mean, we've been to the moon. We're trying to get to Mars. We don't need the church and we don't need God. These are dated. These are old-fashioned. These are ways we used to live, but now we know better. This is what Joash is embodying. Is I once followed the priest, but now that he's dead, that's old stuff, I follow what the cool kids are doing, and I listen to what they say. And so now the kingdom goes downhill again. Joash gets to the point where he actually... Does something incredibly tragic. Instead of honoring Jehoiada, he does the worst thing he can do to Jehoiada, the priest. His son, Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, is a prophet. Well, he's not, it doesn't say he's a prophet, but he speaks on behalf of the Lord to Joash in verse 20. He says, This is the middle. In the middle of verse 20, he says, Thus says God, why do you break the commandment of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. Do they listen to Zechariah, Jehoiada's son? No. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. This is treachery he kills his priest father who raised him saved him gave him the throne he rewards him by killing his son this is the tragic end of joash so verse 24 we see now just things go downhill the syrians come with a very small army and he can't even resist them and then in verse 25 jehoiada's end is sad when they had departed from him leaving him severely wounded uh, he was wounded in battle. His servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. You, What you did to Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, was sick. So we're going to kill you when you're weak. And they killed him. Now look at who kills him. Um, oh, it's down lower. Get, wait just a second. And they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Jehoiada, therefore, was truly the king. And Joash, at least in the Chronicler's version of the story, Joash had a good start and much better than the previous kings, but he didn't finish well. We'll come back to that concept. So now, who did, who killed him? Who conspired against him? This is really interesting to me. Uh, those who conspired against him were Zadab, the son of Shimeoth, the Ammonite, and Jehoabad, the son of Sh- uh, Shimrith, the Moabite. Why is that significant? Well, we've been going through Nehemiah and um, Ezra, and both of them made a big deal about the Moabite and the, Ez- and the um, Ammonite. They're not to be in the presence of God. This, this lineage has been cut off. Now, there's exceptions when they repent, right? And of clearly, um, Ruth the Moabite was a repentant Moabite. But here we have enemies of God in the courts of Joash, and they become his own undoing. Ironic. The seed of the serpent is clever, and he finds he can slither into small places. Chapter 25. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem. Now here's something that's interesting, and I don't want to go to I don't know how much of this I just want to throw this out there. Um Joash has his mother mentioned, um Amaziah has his mother mentioned, Uzziah will have his mother mentioned, and Jotham will have his mother mentioned. That's four kings in a row. Um, other ones did not have their mother mentioned. Um, in the book of Kings, every single king of Judah had their mother mentioned. Here's a king, here's his mother. And all the kings of Israel, the evil, uh, evil kingdom, none of their mothers were mentioned. And I just wonder if this isn't a picture of Lady Wisdom, whom Solomon was to pass down to his sons. It was, the, it was a showing that um, uh, king, the king finds strength and wisdom in his rule by listening to the generation above him, his mother, and that she's embodying Lady Wisdom, guiding the kingdom. I don't know. It's something to kind of think about. It's interesting that it's in Judah, but not in Israel, that the mother is mentioned alongside the king. Um, So here, Amaziah, we see his mother. Verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. So Joash was the modernizer. And uh, he started well, fell. So Amaziah is going to be half-hearted. He's going to start well and end poorly. So he does he has some good military victories. But then in verse 14, we see he goes downhill after Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites. So here we go. God's success. He struck down the Edomites. Remember, they revolted against Jehoram. Now he's put them back down. But here's the inconceivable stupidity of sin. He conquers the Edomites, and then it says that he brought the gods of the men of Seir, that's the Edomites, he brought their gods and set them up as his gods and worshiped them, making offerings to them. So he's like, cool, I defeated these people because their gods couldn't protect them. Our gods better, so I'm just going to adopt their gods and worship them. You're better than these, you conquered them. Like, what are you thinking? This is what sin does is that always stoops us below what God has made us to be. So the Lord was angry and he sent a prophet and said, why have you sought the gods of the people who did not deliver their own people from your hands? You are just dumb. But, but, Amaziah then says, who made you a royal counselor? Shut up. I'm putting this in contemporary language. Stop. Why should you not be struck down? He says, why should you be struck down? Um, I mean, stop or you will be struck down. So it's like, shut up. Why, why shouldn't we strike you down right here? This is now his attitude toward God. He resists his prophets now. So he is then defeated um, by Israel. He stupidly goes to war against Israel, not with them, against them. And the king of Israel is like, dude, come on. Just because you beat the Edomites, you think you can beat us? You're too arrogant. Stop. And he's like, no, I can do it. And so he fights him and he gets beat up. And that's that's Amaziah for you right there. It was, it was um, in verse 20. Amaziah would not listen for it was of God in order that he might give them into the hands of their enemies because they had sought the gods of Edom. So, you want the gods of Edom? They can't deliver you. So there you go. Cry on them when you're in battle. Oh, you lost? And I warned you. Chapter 26, Uzziah. So the people then take Uzziah and make him king. Uh, Verse 4. Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So he started really well. That's what it's saying. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So in verse 7. God helped him. And then it lists all of the great successes of Uzziah. The many sheep and cattle and the land that he gained. So then down in the bottom of 15, the very last line of verse 15. His fame spread far for he was marvelously helped by God till he was strong. But what happened when he was strong? He forgets to rely on God. He relies on himself. Uzziah is a warning about, about fast success. Success in a way that is not relying upon God every step of the way. He becomes strong. So verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Don't forget, pride and destruction are twins. Never forget that. Pride He forgets his place, is what this is. Self-esteem wants people to think well of us, but pride is when we are above what people think of us. Your opinion's too low. I'm in a different realm of mortality. And this is what Uzziah does. He goes into the temple. Good. He goes into the holy place. Not good. He takes the incense that was offered on the altar right in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies, Only dedicated, consecrated priests can touch that. And the priests come in, 80 of them, the high priests and 80 guys, to just like, here's a witness, Uzziah, do not drop that incense. And Uzziah the king sitting there, like, hey, I'm strong. I've had all this success. God is on my side. And just like that little childish scene, like, don't you dare drop it. Why don't you stop me? He just looks defiantly at them, and he offers the incense. And immediately, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. And Uzziah recognizes, I just transgressed a God that I thought I could step over. Uh And he is not only escorted out, because a leper can't be in the temple, he recognizes it and leads himself out, it says. He recognizes this and went out. So, in verse um, 21... The king Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was made king while he's alive because he's a leper now. He's he's living among the dead. This is where pride takes us. It's the last of the passions that drops us straight into the mouth of hell. I'm not saying that Uzziah is in hell. He, we, we had the intro that said he pleased the Lord, um, but he lived a living hell the last of his days. And so, in verse twenty-three, Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said he is a leper. Now, the ESV, because the Hebrew can, um, it says that they buried him with his fathers. That could also read near his fathers. So the Hebrew is a little fuzzy there. The ESV opted, he's buried with the fathers. But then it says a strange statement, like, but he, because he was a leper. That doesn't make sense. It would say, if, if you're pointing out that he's a leper, you're trying to say that there's something unique about his burial. So it's probably best to read that he was buried near his fathers, not with them, in a separate plot of ground. So here we have another king who's not buried with the kings. Then chapter 27, finally... Nothing bad happens. So what I do in passages like this to help me navigate is I highlight things they do well in green, and then I highlight things they do well bad in red. And there's no red in chapter 27, finally. There was no green in some other passages too, by the way. But Jotham, his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. Verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all his father Uzziah had done. Except he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Good job. But the people still followed corrupt practices. Now, we cannot change the people. We can't. And Jotham does not legal, or he does not go around and make it a law that you've got to worship Yahweh. That might have looked good on paper. And if he was in a democracy, he might have gotten more votes from the people of God. But he understands that I can't control that. I lead a righteous life and I will be an example and I will lead them. But I cannot change the heart of people. We don't want just lip service. So then it talks about the things he did to prosper the kingdom, to advance it. And then in verse six, so Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before the Lord his God. He ordered his ways before the Lord his God. And that's why. That's why Jotham is a breath of fresh air. We've had a lot of setbacks. The seed was almost completely eradicated. But the woman came and saved. And then we see fruits beginning to grow but it just can't sustain to the end of the king's lives and all of them fall corrupt at some point. But then Jotham. Finally, we have one. Is that an apple blossom on the tree? It's like exciting. Like the seed is prospering again. This is good news. Now, don't look ahead a chapter because you'll find out next week it gets really bad again. And then it gets really good again. It's a volatile uh, season. But we do see in Jotham this encouragement because it was in uh, Joash he was it said in 24-2 he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest as long as Jehoiada's around I do good when he's not around I do what I do so he was like a 50 50 we see amaziah 25 verse 2 he did what was right in the eyes of the lord yet not with the whole heart so pardons, like i love the lord but pardons, like but i just want to like how far can i straddle the line of not being saved and still be saved we all know people like that that's in some of our hearts too this is half-heartedness and this is he's, he's another 50 50 case and then we have uzziah and um, we see that he was doing really well, and the Lord helped him until he was strong. And then he's like, I got it from here, God. And he was the leper. So we have a bunch of 50-50 rulers. But now we have Jotham, and the difference is he wasn't righteous until the priest died. He wasn't righteous half-heartedly. He wasn't righteous until he didn't need God's help anymore. He was righteous because he ordered his ways before the Lord. This is a man who is choosing what rules him rather than just letting what surrounds him rule him. This is what a true royal son and daughter of the king looks like. They have order, they are intentional about the authority God gives them in this world, and they use it for God. The seed does not grow by accident. It grows through watering. It grows through good soil. Think of the parable of the sower that Jesus told us. This was a warning for our growth. You don't just throw seed wherever and it's just going to, I mean, it's not going to be prosperous if you throw it wherever. Jotham ordered his ways before the Lord and he bore fruit. You and I, We need order, and we need vigilance. Because this is what Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah lacked, was vigilance. They start well, they see some fruit, and they think, cool, I'm good. Not realizing that even a tree bearing fruit can grow sick. When we are not vigilant, the serpent slithers into the tiniest of cracks, It is a 24-7 job, brothers and sisters, for the Christian to watch his soul. We are cracked, and there are hundreds of ways that evil can get into us. We set guard. We put on the full armor of God. We do not cease in praying because this is how we watch the heart, and this is how we keep pleading for the Lord's help. When we decide that I can... Do the minimal. You're not going to find successful fruit in your life, and you're going to live the ways of any one of these kings we mentioned. Maybe you don't go as bad as Jotham, but you don't go as successful as Jotham. Jotham's a good guy, Jehoram. I mean, maybe you don't go that bad, but you at least will be the 50-50 kings. We get to rule with Christ forever. This is what Revelation tells us. This is what it means to be a son and daughter of the king. It's you're a prince and a princess, and there's an age to come. There is a kingdom of heaven, and we will have these roles. But the question before us tonight is, are you choosing what rules you? Are you ordering your life before the king of kings? Or are we just simply going and letting what surrounds us rule over us, letting what surrounds us order us? Are we intentional or accidental? Bad kings are accidental. Good kings are intentional. Vigilance requires order. Order is vigilance. Have we ordered our lives before the Lord? Think about your mind. How have we ordered the way we use our minds? Does our phone dictate what we think about? Does the news dictate what we think about? Do movies and film dictate what we think about? Or are we ordering our thoughts through the study of scripture? What about the heart? Do we allow advertisements and what all the cool kids are doing to shape the desires of our hearts? Or do we order the desires of our hearts according to the kingdom of God through prayer and worship? The heart that seeks the kingdom in prayer and worship is a heart that's ordered before God. The mind that studies God's word is a mind ordered toward the kingdom of God. What about our bodies? Are our bodies ordered? Or do we just eat recklessly and mindlessly? Do we just sleep recklessly, mindlessly? If you could sleep mindlessly, <laughs> <laughs> or sleep not mindlessly, <laughs> uh, are we too? Are we sleeping too much or not enough? Because we're worried about everything. Are we just eating because we're bored? Are we eating to feel better about our lives, or are we ordering our bodies? Are we ordering them with? limitations? Are we ordering them by saying, I might need to sleep? Or are we even practicing fasting, which is a great discipline on the body? These are ways we can order mind, heart, body. What about our neighbor? Do we have an order? Have we ordered our neighbor before the Lord? I don't mean you go around and give them orders. I know how badly you want to do that. (laughs) Especially when they shovel the snow in such a way that the plow pushes it onto your driveway. Right? You always want to say something. But um, your relationships, you need an order or you won't seek relationships. We need to have intention about meeting with brothers and sisters in the kingdom. And we need intention about sustaining those relationships that are not part of the kingdom. But having a, a goal with those so that we don't get sucked into their ways. We order our relationships. We order our stuff. <laughs> our stuff sometimes orders us, doesn't it? It's so cheap sometimes because it all comes from China. and blah, blah, blah. But we need to order our stuff with simplicity and generosity, not acquisition. That's a bad order. But simplicity. Do I really need this? Or does somebody else need this? There's so, there's such a variety of ways we can order our ways before the Lord. The idea is that when we do, we determine what rules us so that we can flourish as a seed growing the fruits of the kingdom. Or else you're going to be ordered by Athaliah. You're going to be ordered and ruled by everything that surrounds you. And I'm sick and tired of seeing it. It hurts me. It hurts to see the church succumbing to 50-50 50-50 rulership. I don't want to see Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah fail in their kingships. How much better would it have been to see all of them succeed to the end? They were mighty men, and let's not discredit that. They gave they were given the stamp of approval in their introductions. But there is just enough filth that the kingdom was on its way down. And we have the power in our lives and how we live every day. To see the kingdom of God flourish in our churches or to see our churches continue toward apathy and vanilla transcendental spiritualishness with just Jesus being the name instead of something else. Let's walk in the ways of David, our fathers, not in the ways of the cool kids of the kings of Israel.